0: Hello, and welcome to a special interview from the blog of the Journal of the History of Ideas. Over the past four weeks, the Journal of the History of Ideas blog forum on Hans Blumenberg and political myth has featured reflections on the text Prefiguration Arbeit on Politischen Mythos and other works by Hans Blumenberg as a posthumous intervention into the conceptual history of political myth. Traditionally, Blumenberg was thought to be a largely apolitical thinker and his writings on myths seem to focus primarily on issues within literary studies, intellectual history, and philosophy. However, with the discovery of Prefiguration, a text where myths role in politics is explicitly discussed, Blumenberg's relevance for political thought has generated a large amount of scholarly activity. This comes at the very moment when the public at large is much more attuned, it would seem, to the mutability and stakes of political myths. How does this intervention help us read the current context? In the lead-up to two important symposiums on Blumenberg in Leuven and Berlin, and ahead of an article on Blumenberg and the Times Literary Supplement, Professor Angus Nichols of Queen Mary University of London speaks to the Journal of the History of Ideas blog. Professor Nichols discovered the prefiguratio in manuscript and, along with Felix Heidenreich, co-edited the text for publication. From scholarly issues such as the discovery of the prefiguration text and how the concept of prefiguration relates relates to Blumenberg's theory of metaphor as a whole, to pressing contemporary issues such as the relevance of Blumenberg's thought for understanding our shifting political landscape and how we might distinguish between good and bad political myths, this is a not-to-be-missed interview and it closes our forum. And addresses how Blumenberg's posthumous intervention to the concept of political myth may help us read our current context. So Professor Nichols, thank you for joining us today. The first question I want to ask you is if you could tell us a bit more about the context surrounding the discovery of the prefiguration text.
1: Yes, yeah, so the prefiguration text was something that I discovered in the Blumenberg nachlas. I think it was in late 2011 or early 2012. And the way that I discovered it was firstly um, that Bloomberg collected reviews of Arbiter Mythos, and I came across uh, the review that Goetz Miller, the very critical review that Goetz Müller had written of Arbiter Mythos in the Zeitschrift für Deutsche Philologie. Um, that then led me to uh, also investigate whether there had been a correspondence between Müller and Blumenberg, and there had been. Uh, and it was through that correspondence that I discovered Blumenberg's reference to uh, the text, which in that letter to Gotz Müller he calls Stalingrad as Müller'sche Konsequenz. Um, he refers to that particular text as a chapter of Arbata Mutos that he didn't include in the published version. And then the question was, does a text with the title Stalingrad as Military Consequence exist within the Naplas? It doesn't, but through using um, contextual material, including various drafts and also um, contents, draft contents pages that Blubenberg had drawn up within various folders, and also based upon the signature, A-M-Y, we could determine with a very high degree of accuracy that the text which was published as Prefiguration is the text that he refers to in the letter to Goetzmüller.
0: One of the things that's been really consistent in your work about Blumenberg, uh, a position you really hold, is that his biography is important to understanding his philosophy. You really draw attention to that uh, in your upcoming TLS review of Kurt Flash's new book on Blumenberg's post-war writings, about about how Blumenberg's biography helps us understand the context of how he might relate to the the other people in the post-war intellectual landscape. Can I I just ask you, why do you feel uh, Blumenberg's biography is so important for his philosophy? And I think the second question is, how does that distinguish him from his contemporaries in the post-war landscape?
1: Uh, Well, I don't don't know whether whether this particular feature distinguishes him in particular, um, because all philosophers working in Germany in the post-war landscape were working in the context of a country which was being reconstructed after the Second World War and which had, um, you know, a a terrible political legacy to deal with and work through. Um, But I suppose there are certain aspects of Lubenberg's biography which which we know about which make those issues perhaps in some way more pressing for him. Um, This is not to suggest that it's acceptable or that I, I would even recommend in any sense biographically reductive readings of his philosophical texts, because that's not what I mean but I, I think to ignore that context is to miss some of what's going on in the texts and I think also Blumenberg provides us at certain points with clues or with hints that um, those biographical details are in some sense relevant as well uh, I suppose the main um, issues involved in thinking about the relevance of Blumenberg's biography is to look both at what he does and he does not say in certain texts. So apart from a few exceptions, there are, there is not a lot of politically explicit material in his work. But there's a lot of pl- implicitly political material in his, in his work. It's possible, for example, to read the entirety of Ava Mutos as in some sense, a polemic against Karl Schmidt. It's impossible also to entirely miss that as many of the reviewers of that book did, right? Not many people picked that up. Um, so that, in a sense, B- Blumenbeck's positions on certain questions do become more understandable. And perhaps his reticence to speak about certain issues also becomes more understandable when you consider the biographical situation that he was in, namely um, that you know, he was a survivor of the Holocaust in many ways. Um, also um, that, as I try to show in my book Myth and the Human Sciences, uh, when he was beginning his career in post-war German philosophy. He was, in some ways, surrounded by people who had tainted uh, legacies with respect to the history of national socialism in Germany, either people who had been party members or people who had been more than that, like Karl Schmidt or Heidegger, for example. So that um, my point is not that philosophical positions should ever be reduced to biography, but that. Um, philosophical positions become more understandable when they're related to real world situations. And I think this is partly we can find this in Blumenberg's work in itself when we look at his interest in the idea of the philosophical anecdote, right? That you know you tell a story about a certain philosopher. Um, um, that in that sense um, the way that philosophy works for Blumenberg if we see him as in some ways a pragmatist, which I do, uh, is that philosophy works us, helps to work us out of difficult life situations or helps us to deal with certain difficult life situations um, in, in pragmatic terms, then I think it, um, the demand is placed upon us when we read Bloomberg's works to not only read the texts themselves, which of course we have to do very carefully because they're difficult texts but also to take into consideration the historical context um, in which they were written.
0: How would you respond to the um, counter-argument that somebody could say if he didn't write about it during his lifetime? Because, for example, the Prefigurazione text is rediscovered, essentially, and some of the um, some of the other texts are posthumously published that have become important for the political reception of Blumenberg. Yep. How would you argue? Um, or push back against the criticism that, well, he didn't publish it during his lifetime, was it? he didn't have an explicit systematic program. So we are embedding or imbuing um, his thought with a political thought that is just periphery.
1: Sure, I mean, there are, there are various ways of seeing this and um, the question of the Nathlas in the history of German philosophy is a big question. Um, there are some... Thinkers. I'm not sure that Bloomberg would agree with this position, but um, a good example is, is Martin Heidegger, who argues that the Nachlas Nietzsche is the real Nietzsche and the published one is not the real one. That In, in a sense, the more primordial philosopher is the one that you find within the Nachlas. Um, we have evidence for this in Bloomberg's works himself, in the sense that Bloomberg was also extremely in, interested in texts written by Husserl that are only in the Nachlas and that were later published in the Husserliana in the you know the extended edition of Husserl's works. Uh, I think we need to, w- to weight texts differently depending upon whether they were published during his lifetime uh, or whether they weren't. Uh, my feeling is that when Blumenberg addresses political questions in more explicit terms he's less sure of those positions or he's less willing to expose himself um, as a political thinker uh, than he was in other texts which are political in more guarded ways. So there I'm thinking mm-hmm. in particular of the text by by Blumenberg, Perfiguration, but I'm also thinking of the text Moses der Egypte, which is again a very explicitly political text. Uh, I, my sense of Blumenberg as a thinker is that he was relatively guarded in being in being open about political. Uh, questions but he nevertheless needed and wanted to address them and there were other thinkers around him such as Otto Markvart for example who um, uh, uh, one good example of this is that he really made Lumenberg's, um praise of polytheism in Arbeiter Mythos into something more of a political program than Blumenberg himself did right so Whereas Bloomberg was less keen to, de- to develop clearly defined explicit political positions, he, I think he was quite happy for readers to work out what those positions were through carefully reading his texts, and the people who didn't carefully read his texts he didn't seem to be particularly concerned about, right? The challenges for the reader to work out the political position in his thinking, at least in those texts published during his lifetime. There are a couple of exceptions to that. Um, there's the text... Wirklichkeitsbegriff von Staatstheorie, which was published in a relatively minor journal in the late 1960s, which is very explicitly political. Um, I suppose um, there's um, the essay on anthropologische Annäherung, anti rhetoric, which again, while not being explicitly political, certainly has deep political implications. Um, but I think during his lifetime he wasn't seen as an explicitly political thinker, and I think that's correct. But now that these texts are emerging from, from the Natlas, we begin to see his works in a new light. And using those texts, we can go back to the ones that were published during his lifetime and actually pull out or you know, find the deeper political kind of nuances in those earlier texts as well.
0: Do you think we can use Blumenberg's thinking as a hermeneutic tool, Um, to interpret uh, contemporary political situations?
1: Okay, Um, yeah, I think that, you know, recent examples have shown that prefiguration is a useful thought pattern or a useful concept that we can use in order to understand how in certain political contexts leaders may invoke historical precedents in order to justify actions which are highly uh, uh, questionable and extremely risky. Um, The one that I've recently um, written about myself in a couple of places is uh, Boris Johnson's invocation of the Second World War and of Churchill as a kind of analogy with according to him at least, um, the position of Great Britain with respect to the European Union. Uh, And this example, in my view, shows very clearly that the prefiguration uh, or the analogy being drawn does not necessarily have to be rationally plausible at all. Nobody in their right mind would, on a rational level, compare the European Union with with Nazi Germany. However, it's the significance of the prefigurate, or the example being invoked, the emotional power of it, uh, that is the aspect which can be useful within the function of political rhetoric, right? So that, um, I think Blumenberg is useful to us um, because he reminds us that it's not possible really to um, create a kind of firewall in politics between rational discourse on the one hand and irrational or non-rational discourse on the other rather that these are continually intermixed within political discourse and that in order to understand what's going on politically we need to always keep in mind that when that the political discourse of the West which has tended to see itself as rational is not entirely rational and that political decisions are often made on an entirely non-rational basis and so that What seemed to be, in the late 1970s, early 1980s in Germany, and one sees this from the reception of work on myth, what seemed to be a rehabilitation of myth on Bloomberg's part, and Bloomberg was accused of this by people like Karl-Heinz Borer, it wasn't actually a rehabilitation of myth at all, it was a plea to actually recognise what myth is and that it continues to function within societies that thought themselves to be enlightened and post-mythical. They weren't post-mythical and they weren't enlightened in the complete sense, right? There's always um, a remainder of myth which lurks around and which um, can influence the way that societies make political decisions. So as a follow-up
0: question to that, one of the things we've talked about in this forum is we've seen some great pieces that Um, look at the concept of political myth within the German tradition more broadly and within the Greek tradition. Um, How do you feel that uh, Blumenberg's thinking relates to this larger concept of political myth? I know that one of the things you're um, presenting about in Leuven on the 19th and 20th is Kassira and Blumenberg. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you talk a bit more about this larger concept of political myth and how uh, prefiguratio might relate to that larger concept?
1: Sure. So... I mean, myth already has a kind of political function in the ancient Greeks, I would say, uh, or it's already politically loaded and politically marked in the sense that um, when you look at a thinker, for example, like Plato, who's very keen to create precisely the firewall that I was speaking about before between rational discourse on the one end and myth on the other, he makes it pretty clear that um, within the rational state as he sees it, there would potentially be a function for poetry or myth, but that would only be once the rational positions which a society wants to take are worked out rationally, and then myth could be utilised in order to reinforce those positions, right? So that in Plato's view, um, myth may serve a political role in helping to communicate the rational positions of the state, but it's the philosopher kings, not the poets, who decide which direction the state is going to go in, at least in the Republic. Um, This is complicated by other texts. Uh, So already in the ancient Greeks, you have this idea that myth may have a political function. Um, I suppose what happens in the German tradition and what's interesting about Blumenberg's position in the German tradition is that around the time of German Romanticism around the period of 1800. Um, You have the authors of the system program of German Idealism who are working within a post-Kantian philosophical context who look around and see that the ideas of reason as Kant communicated them or as Kant conceived them were not necessarily uh, ideas which they felt could have political purchase in society at large. And so in order um, for those ideas to be realized politically, you needed to communicate them via myth. There needed to be some kind of refunctionalizing of myth within the political sphere. Uh, and one of the pieces that you've um, used for this particular blog, I, it's uh, the first piece that you're publishing, mentions the system program and also mentions the fact that in some ways Blumenberg is somebody who exists within that tradition of German romanticism of rethinking myth, although the author of that piece also correctly points out that Blumenberg does not necessarily call for the return of myth, he merely points out to us that it was always already there and that we need to recognise it. So. It's true, myth becomes a political concept in German Romanticism around that time. It's not just a a collection of stories. It's actually a philosophical concept which starts to be used in relation to rationality. And it's seen as something which is meant to supplement rationality or give rationality purchase in the minds of people um, politically, right? Uh, Whereas in the system program that idea is not necessarily tied to um, political positions that we could associate with the left or the right later on not only in German thought but in European thought more generally those positions are worked out by various thinkers and the ones who are most important for Blumenberg and most important for the Perfiguration text are Georges Sorel um, who um, of course writes about the myth of the general strike and talks about the fact that, in order for uh, a political grouping to become motivated to take real political action, they need to have some kind of mythological narrative which is going to motivate them. Karl Schmidt later becomes attracted to this aspect of Sorel and attempts to mobilize it on the right and he sees the way that Mussolini has done this within the Italian uh, context, so that Blumenberg is aware of all of this we know that um, <coughs> When he was editor of the Theorie series published by Zurkamp, the text by Sorrel was published in German translation under his uh, supervision, so he knew about all of this and he was well aware of those positions when he wrote Arbeiter Mutos. Uh, and in many ways, as I try to show, a myth in the human sciences, and I think as can be also seen in um, any careful reading of. Arata Mutos, Blumenberg's position on myth is one in which precisely because he emphasizes polytheism is one which is directly and polemically directed against Karl Schmidt's idea of myth as something which may support a monotheistic political theology. So it's all of those questions are bound up with how Blumenberg thinks about myth politically.
0: One thing I'm curious about as we move towards a close is um, the role of agency, if that even exists within Blumenberg's uh, contribution to the concept of political myth. Um, one of the one of the popular ideas about what political myth is is it's essentially the ideological narrative of a particular uh, political group, um, and. I'm curious about the way in which uh, Blumenberg, as you have pointed out, doesn't necessarily say we need to return to myth, but provides this idea of an awareness that myths are always there functioning within mm-hmm. politics. It could be argued that there are two kind of two kinds of ideology operating here. On the one hand, it's just the backdrop of the the, the symbols and the myths in the life world that we draw from in order to um, to prefigure, as, as you talked about with Boris Johnson's. Mm-hmm. Um, political rhetoric, but then there would also be the um, the Karl Schmitt, the very uh, particular um, creation of an ideology. And what role, is there a place for agency within Blumenberg's political thought about the way in which we have um, a critical capacity? Um, Blumenberg's obviously a slightly different position to, on the one hand, the hermeneutic tradition in post-war Germany, but he's not quite as far as Dorno either. Um, could you talk a bit about the role of agency in Blumenberg's political thought as you see it?
1: Yeah, I think there we need to be quite careful about the terminology that Blumenberg uses in arbiter Mutos when he speaks about myth. Um, he makes this distinction between mutos generally, or myth, on the one hand, and what he calls Kunstmutos on the other hand. Um, Incidentally this is mistranslated in the um translation of work on myth in the sense that I think the translator Robert M. Wallace uses the term art myth for kunstmythos Bloomberg doesn't mean art myth, he means an artificial myth, right? A kunstmythos for Bloomberg is a myth which has been designed consciously to achieve particular ends. And a a perfect example of this um, is the theory of forms, Plato's theory of forms, and the whole creation story behind it, which you can find in the Timaeus and also in, in other texts. Bloomberg points out in Pletification that this particular story or this particular account of how the forms perceive the physical world is a Kunstmuthos in the sense that its its purpose is to justify the precedence or the victory of philosophy over sophistry or the victory of philosophy over rhetoric because it's only by the forms that we can distinguish between those two things according to Plato so that when it comes to political propaganda um, often what we're dealing with is the question of people creating a so-called kunstmudos, um rather than what Bloomberg might call real myth, right? Now, what do I mean by real myth? What I mean by that is that uh, an ancient story like Prometheus, and Bloomberg gives an account of this in Arvator Mutos, is a story which evolves haphazardly over, over thousands of years through countless retellings in front of different audiences, uh, it's difficult to know in advance what the audience is going to find captivating, but over the years it's told in different ways and it's passed down in various different ways with various different contingencies which nobody can really have control over because the myth itself doesn't have an individual author. Right? That's what myth is. It's something which exceeds the agency of any individual author. So that those types of genuine myths, as Bloomberg might call them, um, are really very difficult to, instru- in, to instrumentalize politically because you can't really control them. On the other hand, this is why there may be a, another reason why Bloomberg chose not to put prefiguration in *Abertemutus*, because in a way, the prefiguration idea in some ways problematizes the whole theory of methods in that book, because on the one hand, um, a prefiguration is powerful because of because of the significance that's attached to it in the general culture. And that's not something that you can make up, right? You can't confect bedeutsamkeit or significance. It's always already there and then you mobilize it or you utilize it in the Prefiguration. So it seems to me that Prefiguration is a special case in that on the one hand, um, it is a kunstmutos in the sense that a prefiguration is in many ways the conscious use of a, of an earlier example in order to justify actions in the present day and so there's certainly an agency or an intention behind it but the significance attached to the prefigurate or to the historical example is not something that anybody has control over and you know significance is powerful precisely because nobody controls it right it's already there in the culture you find it lying around and then you utilize it for your own political program so it seems to me that prefigation problematizes this distinction between mythos on the one hand and kunst on the other it could be that it's both at the same time which is quite politically troubling right because on the one it it, it means that those artificial myths have more power than what we might initially have thought that they do
0: at the risk of um, being pithy, is, is following on from that, is there anything, one or two things I should say, that, that you feel that are the most important and um, uh, timely things that Blumenberg's philosophy brings to the contemporary discussion around political myth?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest challenge thrown down by Blumenberg at the moment, and certainly the one which exercises the, me the most, is the question of what do we do, right? So in the United States, you have the Trump administration. In the UK, you have the Boris Johnson government, uh, which you know, has its, its aim to take the UK out of the European Union. Whether or not you agree with that, um, it seems to me a highly risky scenario. And many of the positions taken up by Trump also carry with them quite a deal of risk. And we also see that in both nations, not only in the Anglophone West, but also in other countries around the world, non-rational political discourse seems to be gaining um, significant purchase on the way that democracies function. And so the question is, what do you do in order to counteract that? Is it ever enough? We saw during the Brexit campaign, is it really ever enough? to oppose um non-rational political arguments which are laden with prefigurations with rational critique in the brexit uh referendum it simply wasn't enough to point out that it was rationally in the interest of the united kingdom for reasons of trade to remain within the european union that didn't have the same purchase as the idea of taking back control which is, of course, deeply related to the prefigurate of um, Great Britain being an imperial power and its triumphs during the Second World War, right? So the question which Blumenberg's um, theory of myth throws down is whether um, the only way to really um, surmount or overcome one political myth is to oppose it with another one, right? And then you have the whole question, if if you're opposing one myth with another one, how does that then allow us to distinguish between good myth on the one hand and bad myth on the other, right? That distinction itself will be one which is determined by subjective political opinion and by ideology, right? So it seems to me that Bloomberg's theory of myth poses these questions without necessarily answering them. I mean, a very clear clear case of this is the text Moses der Ägypte, in which Blumenberg seems to me very clearly to say that it was understandable uh, within the context of Israel during the 1960s that the Israeli government wanted to mythicise or demonise Eichmann for political purposes, and that this was entirely understandable, and that Hannah Arendt um, didn't appreciate this fact significantly. So, again, it's difficult to draw a a definitive political position out of that um, text because in a way what Bloomberg does, as he typically does in many texts, is cast himself as as a phenomenological observer of politics rather than making explicit political recommendations. But it seems to me that if we draw the conclusions out of that text, he seems to be saying that myth is going to be used in politics whether we like it or not and we have to deal with that situation and in, in many political contexts rational argument won't be enough to surmount a powerful political myth so it's really a it really throws up a whole crisis for the west conception of itself and the whole rational project of the west of western political theory in which still I think people believe that in the end rational critique or rational analysis of political situations should lead us to making the, the correct decisions. I know that that idea has been disputed since Adorno and Horkheimer and before, but I still think it's in a way the, the baseline assumption of most political analysis in the West today even if we know that it's problematic in the end what else do we have other than rational analysis or do we have to combine rational analysis with myth Does is it then a similar case to the case which seems to be made by Plato where through rational analysis we arrive at the correct decisions and then we communicate them mythically I don't know but I think Bloomberg's theory raises all of these very troubling and important political questions. Professor Nichols thank you for talking with us today. Thank you.